He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Welcome back, folks. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Today, we are talking to tomorrow. That's right. I am recording this on Tuesday afternoon, speaking to someone who is in the future. Kirsty Woods, Perth, Australia. I think it's Perth. Hi, right? you guys. Great it's Perth, there. right? Yeah, in Perth, uh, Western Australia. So uh, nice and early here this morning. But thank you guys for having me. I look forward to chatting all things health and metabolism and anything else that pops up. Well, the first question I want to ask you is what is the future like? Uh, it's a little bit rainy, but um, mm. hopefully hopefully, uh, all good, in uh, particularly in terms of the development of science and everything else. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm done being an idiot, at least for a little while. Phil, tell us why Kirsty's here with us. Yeah, I've really been looking to have a, uh, forward to having this conversation with Kirsty for quite a while now. Uh, she uh, has been doing some amazing work uh, that I think brings a little bit of a different spin uh, to, you know, the approach around metabolic health. And uh, we'll certainly get into some of the interesting uh, work that she has been doing, um, both from sort of a research and a clinical standpoint. Uh, so, Kirsty, welcome. And uh, why don't you uh, kind of introduce yourself a little bit to our audience, let them know a little bit about your background and maybe how you got interested in metabolic health. Yeah, perfect. So um, I'm an exercise physiologist, which I believe over in America has a slightly different name, a physical therapist. Um, I believe, uh, and essentially 11 years ago now, um, I got reintroduced to a technology with the fancy name of indirect calorimetry um, for a small medical company called Metabolic Health Solutions, um, or back then was Energy Testing Solutions. And it, I was given a box and my role to say, hey, can this work in clinic with real people? Because we know it's such a valuable tool in research. So take that to the future, which is now, um, can definitely say yes, it can, looking at specific areas of uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, the fatty liver, the diabetes, anything associated with uh, metabolism. So unlike many of the hosts, it's not so much of a personal journey, but supported by the data, I can't unsee what I've seen. So. Um, yeah, hence I'm on here today. Okay. okay, so what have you seen? I'm sorry, I may be jumping the gun, but... No, I was just going to say, before we get into that, you know, just to sort of make a little bit of a distinction for our audience, you know, most physical therapists here in the U.S., which, uh, you know, I would agree is roughly equivalent to what you do, but most physical therapists here in the U.S., you know, focus on the sort of uh, movement aspect and the technical aspects and kind of rehab from injury. 
I think we have very few, uh, you know, physiologists uh, who are really trying to understand, you know, how our bodies work and and the sort of, uh, you know, metabolic uh, machinery that is uh, going on within our bodies that, that you've been looking into. Uh, and so, you know, with that as a launching point, why don't you explain uh, to our audience, you know, what indirect calorimetry actually is, uh, because I think many won't be familiar with it. It's really not a technology that gets used much these days uh, outside of the laboratory setting. So uh, let's start with that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you say most physical therapists get involved with the rehab side, and it is the same in Australia. But essentially, we have the best understanding along with dietitians and those sorts of things of the physiology and metabolism, both at rest and obviously in during exercise. So hence that deviation into that area. Um, so indirect calorimetry um, is it is a hard word to say. It took me uh, a good couple of months to use that tongue twister. Um, but essentially it's a tool that me- measures your metabolism. So it's a, a breathing test that analyzes your oxygen and your carbon dioxide, which is essentially the key components of your metabolism. So we can have a look at if your metabolism is fast or slow, whether you're burning fat or glucose, keeping in mind that the body is designed to burn fat, it is key for things like obviously weight loss management, but also nice, stable energy, prevention of fatty liver. And then we can also have a look at your and indicators for mitochondrial function, um, looking at the oxygen as well. Yeah, so and, you know, I think it's real interesting um, as much as we talk about metabolic health um, and focus on it here, we, rare, we rarely actually measure this like in the clinical setting, you know. Um, obviously, you know, we realize its importance, um, but most people would not have had, you know, any sort of actual assessment of, you know, what their metabolism is doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that can uh, provide us with some unique insights. Absolutely. As um, we sometimes say in clinic, why guess when you can test? Because as you say, we're always referring to metabolism. Yet we're using some guesswork, uh, particularly when it comes to, you know, the assumption that someone might have a slow metabolism or the assumption that everyone burns 80% fat. Yet in the cohorts particularly that we see, definitely not the case. Okay, so as as the resident dummy, you're getting all that information from the breath? Yes, correct. Okay, that's seriously cool. Phil, yep. is this is this do we have this technology in, in the US? Yeah, so we have the technology here in the US, but it's mostly reserved for laboratory settings um, and uh, research uh, you know projects. Um, it, it's fairly unusual to see it used, you know, sort of in the clinics uh, by physicians or, um, you know, uh, it, it can be done, um, but it's rarely done is what I would say. And and I, I think Kirsty would probably agree that, 
you know, in Australia, that's probably largely true as well. She's uh-huh. one of the few, she's really one of the few, her and her uh, company are one of the few, uh, you know, organizations that I know of that are really putting this into practical use, you know, in the clinic with people um, outside of a research setting. So when I look at this, my thing that I track my glucose and ketones with, Phil turned me on to this thing. It, that's what, when it when it says, if I want to manually enter numbers and it asks me for the source, and one of the choices is breath, that's where that would come from? Not essentially. So um, <laughs> this is where it gets a little bit complex. I believe what that device is measuring your ketones in the form of acetone, which is in your breath. Yeah. Whether that- what we're looking at is all pathways of fat metabolism, not just the outcome, which is a ketone, which we know that um, there's some complexities and we can put um, a website, um, which I found and posted recently, about measuring ketones. But just because we're measuring ketones doesn't mean that we're essentially losing fat um, because, you know, if you load up on supplements, you can be producing them because it's what's left over not necessarily what your body's utilizing. Okay, I got to ask, what supplements will will read as ketones? And is that in your blood, in your breath, in your urine, what? So there's um, a couple of forms, but it's essentially ketone esters um, that, you know, for example, might be used um, in Alzheimer's research um, or there are some marketing sort of schemes over here which you know do have a role but particularly in the weight loss chronic disease space it's another fuel that your body needs to use as opposed to utilizing its own body fat stores so when we produce ketones from our own fat metabolism it has other various physiological effects than just supplementing and raising them in the blood which obviously we can dispense of through our breath and urine as well, whatever's not used. Bill, we're probably deep into the weeds here, and I've got, I, I could ask a lot of questions, but I also realize there's, I'm sure there's some specific things you want Kirsty to talk about. So I'm going to step back and wait until what feels like a more opportune time to ask my maybe not so intelligent questions. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, and this is a very, uh, this isn't a simple concept. This isn't a simple issue by any means. And I think that's part of the barrier why, you know, this hasn't been put into more clinical use, because quite frankly, most physicians don't understand uh, the physiology to this level. Um, So maybe, Kirsty, to help us out a little bit, you could give us an example, uh, you know, perhaps a patient, uh, a client that you've worked with where, you know, this type of testing has really given unique insight uh, when they were perhaps struggling, you know, for weight loss or other uh, metabolic problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you um, hit the nail on the head with some of the challenges with this sort of technology. As as we mentioned, it's used in elite athletes and in research because of the valuable data. But unfortunately, because 
of um, some of the interpretation, the big cumbersome calibration of these machines and also the cost. Um, it's not frequently used in clinic. However, we see it as, you know, we want it to be like a blood pressure cuff on every table to test the world's metabolism. And that's where, as I said, the device I'm using, eCal, is a little bit different. It's designed by practitioners for practitioners in terms of the software behind it so you don't need 10 years of physiology experience, um, the user uh, pre-test protocol and all those sorts of things. So we can dive into that a bit later, but I just thought I would preface with that. Now, obviously, all well and good, but how do we apply this to patients? And the real thing is, you know, we, we get referrals for the conditions I've mentioned before, and a lot of the patients I see, they're not people having takeaway every day. It's motivated individuals who are getting frustrated because they're not getting expected results. So, for example, one that comes to mind is I had a lady who was doing um, HIIT training most days um, through one of the gyms over here. So she was really putting it in the gym. She was eating what is typically healthy. Yet when she presented to clinic after having every blood test under the sun, everyone's saying it's fine, it's fine, just keep doing what you're doing. But obviously at the individual level, that's very frustrating and disheartening. We showed her that she wasn't burning fat. And <laughs> that is essentially life transforming for some people. For the first time, they so she are was seeing doing, something she was to doing explain high what's going on. interval training. Sorry, what was that? She was she was doing high intensity interval training, committed to it, motivated, dedicated, and wasn't burning fat. It wasn't working for her, (laughs) and essentially, a little bit of the physiology behind that, as we hear, you know, um, in some of the studies, eighty percent of Americans are not what we call metabolically healthy, based on some other markers. So that in a lot of individual works. But this patient who's not what we call metabolically flexible, i.e. is not burning a lot of fat, she's not burning fat at rest for one reason or another. When she goes to do that exercise, she's going to be depleting the glucose in her muscles called glycogen. She's going to end up a bit fatigued and hungry, release cortisol, which is really not going to help her cause. So in actual fact, by taking back that exercise a notch and specifically looking at diet, so we know that um, reduced carbohydrate loads can work in many of these individuals because it helps to reduce the hormone insulin, which can switch off that fat burning. So by focusing on that, getting her fat burning metabolically healthy, we were able to start to see some results. Say that bit about insulin switching off fat burning again. Remember, I'm 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 the resident idiot. Yeah. So insulin is that hormone that we tend to associate with diabetes. Right. But even before we get to that point, um, there's some studies looking about 10 years beforehand, your insulin, which is released in response to carbohydrates, can play all sorts of games. And so what it can tend to do is it can stay elevated and release more than we should, which says, hey, let's burn this glucose in our system. And in order to do so, it has to switch off that fat metabolism, which is fine. It's the way the body's designed. 
But if you can't switch back into fat burning once that glucose is gone, that's where you get the cravings, that's where you get the energy slumps, that's when you have the issues with weight loss, sleep, all those things tend to clump together. So what we find is people are trying to reverse their diabetes, improve their sleep, improve their energy levels, improve their pain, which can be overwhelming. But if we focus at the key driver, which is metabolism, we can get the changes in the whole of the person. And that's what um, this person reported is not only changes in her weight, um, but in terms of energy for the kids, day-to-day work, sleep, all those other aspects which, you know, are really, really important for the patient, not so much in study and research, but for the N equals one, um, it can't be neglected. I'd, I'd go down that path more, Phil, but I. Yeah, no, I think we should uh, dig into that a little bit more um, because, you know, many uh, people listening to this are probably going to think, well, you know, we've heard me and, you know, many others uh, talk about, you know, lower your carbohydrate intake and eat real food. Um, and, you know, that's the way to get metabolically healthy. And, you know, what, uh, you know, they're thinking to themselves, what unique insights, you know, do you get from this type of testing? Yeah. Um, you know, in one situation, I think uh, would be uh, useful for us to dig into um, that, you know, I, I think does come into play uh, very often is that some people, when they're trying to lose weight, uh, end up under eating and over exercising and not having that, you know, the correct balance there. And that ends up working against, uh, you know, themselves because basically their metabolism shuts down. And, you know, I think that's one situation where this testing would be very useful for people to see that, understand it, and, you know, get the tools, get the information really needed to be able to correct that. Absolutely. So earlier on, we um, I mentioned I can't unsee what I've seen in clinic. Obviously, the individual transformations is one, you know, we've been through the diabetes reversal and all those sorts of things through that time. But the number one thing is in terms of physiology, you learn one way, particularly at university, about carb loading in the exercise space. And then in clinic, I'm putting that into practice and it's not having an impact. Yet, as I say, looking at some therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, which doesn't necessarily need to be ketogenic and develop those ketones for some individuals, I can see that they switch to fat burning. So having that advantage of looking at things from a physiology as opposed to a guideline perspective, as I said, it's 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 blown my mind and, and enabled me to hopefully help so many and, and many more with the likes of this podcast and and what we're driving to do um, at Metabolic Health Solutions, bringing this to more people as well. So, yeah, sorry, go. Uh, no, I was just going to kind of uh, circle back to something, you know, what Jack was alluding to earlier. Um, do you um, oftentimes see that, um, you know, sort of discordance, I guess, where people will be burning fat when you do the, you know, the metabolic testing, uh, but they're not necessarily generating the ketones um, so that, you know, if you're using just a ketone meter, 
you might not be getting the right picture of what's going on with their physiology. Absolutely. Um, and once again, in the show notes, we can show a graphic um, that we're looking at what's going on at a cellular level um, or an indicator at a cellular level at rest. And so sometimes, um, you know, we see people who are doing a pharmacy program and they're getting disheartened um, and we can show them that they are burning fat um, or on the flip side, showing them that, that maybe they're not um, being given the right protocol because a lot of these programs are just unequal, you know, everyone gets the same thing. They might be eating too much or eating too frequently, doing, you know, there's some hormonal and pathology type problems as well. So there's no one size fits all, which unfortunately we try to cookie cutter, those sorts of things. So that's where, for example, looking at someone's fat burning can differentiate some of those level, levels of therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. Um, you know, some people are metabolically healthy, they're active. To them, carbohydrate reduction might look like 150 grams, yet someone with diabetes, it might only be 50 or 20 grams. So you can have a look at those levels um, because why go to some levels when it might not be necessary? And then on the flip side, why introduce it if it's not necessary? So we do get some patients who are actually metabolically healthy. They're burning fat. So for those individuals, it might be more important to have a look at something like intermittent fasting because they have access to their fat stores. So instead of, for example, having breakfast, they can have their own body fat for breakfast. They're not going to get those starvation signals and decline their metabolic rate, which might not be the case with someone who's not burning fat. So it can help to differentiate as well. Okay. I <laughs> I got I a see bunch. some thoughts there, Jack. Oh my gosh, a bunch of things. Um so first of all, the first the first thing that I thought of was Quote, eat your own body fat for breakfast, unquote. That's going to be the title of this of this particular episode. <laughs> That's that'll catch catch people's attention. <laughs> um but uh but I I I don't understand. I want to I want to understand a little better. So with for people who are already burning fat. No, I'm going to back up one question because this is where the second question comes. Second question comes in. The first question was: Is burning fat the sign of metabolic health? Is that essentially me? yes? So when we talk about some of the studies we talked about before in coining people metabolically unhealthy, some things that we look at is your blood sugar levels, your triglycerides, which are your fats in your bloodstream you know, if they've got the presence of fatty liver, all those sorts of things. Yet when we take a step back, essentially that's all derived from the way the body works inside with the metabolism and requires the ability to burn fat so that you can use your body fat, not store it around your liver. You can use your glucose efficiently so that blood sugar levels don't rise. Yeah, and I, I would just say the ability to burn fat is probably what defines metabolic health. You don't necessarily always need to be burning fat when you're metabolically healthy, but I think one of the underlying, you know, root 
issues with people who are not metabolically healthy is that they are unable to burn fat uh, for energy. And, yeah, uh, and look, we've seen it in clinic. We have people come from an overnight fast and they don't have that ability to switch back. And that's the problem is they can't adapt to what's happening in their um, with the fuel in the body. Okay, so first of all, wow, that's probably the first time I've actually had a clue what it really means to be metabolically healthy from a functional standpoint. I've understood from a theoretical standpoint, but now uh, that makes way more sense. Okay, the next question about fasting. So you said with with some people who already have the ability to burn fat, they may not need carbohydrate restriction. They may just need to skip a meal or um, um, maybe I'm a little confused there. Could you expand on that a bit? And who are those people that are metabolically healthy but yeah, yeah, expand. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing is similar to um, the best analogy I have is blood pressure. We generally get an indication of what someone's blood pressure might be, but there's always exceptions to the rule. So those people are the ones I test and that's how they present. So some of them are overweight, which we might not expect them to be burning fat, um, but it's generally the ones who are overweight but what we call insulin sensitive so they don't have the diabetes and those sorts of issues yet um so they're the ones that as i said if they're burning fat they you know they can tend to say i'm not hungry in the mornings um that's another sign as well they're the individuals who it might be a matter of energy in versus energy out and the ability to restrict that time feeding to access those fat stores and get some other hormonal changes that occur with that but on the flip side um you may speak to people saying i've you know i've tried this intermittent fasting i hear it's really good for weight loss but they end up hungry and fatigued and not losing weight and that's most probably because they're not accessing their fat stores they're just depleting their their muscle glycogen the glucose in there um they're getting hungry those sorts of aspects so it's about tailoring those things to the individual okay so if if you're attempting this this form of losing weight of getting getting more healthy and you are experiencing hunger and and tiredness during the day that's likely an indication that you're not making use of your of the fat that's in your system is am i understanding that right yeah, absolutely. We also need to keep in mind things like your salts and electrolytes, um, thyroid function and those sorts of things. But as a general premise, they're the sorts of reports we get from patients once they start to burning fat, they're like, I can't believe I'm not ravenously hungry. They don't know. It feels really weird for them. I would just like to highlight for our listeners that it's entirely possible to eat your own body fat for breakfast. You're not chewing it, I guess, but wow. I I I realize, Phil, that's what you've been saying for two years now, but it's taken a while to to soak in here. And that's why often we see the therapeutic carbohydrate restriction um 
married with the intermittent fasting because that enables them to get into fat burning, which makes the fasting easier. But it may not be necessary for everyone to do them both. It's yeah, probably I, blindingly obvious to everybody else, but it's the penny just dropped for me. <laughs> and that's where I use indirect calorimetry or the metabolism testing as a tool to help people's understanding because a lot of the topics we're chatting about, and particularly metabolism, are complex. So if I can use their own data to explain what's going on, often the penny drops and they're more, once I understand what's going on, they're more inclined to be able to do the recommendation. Sure. Or for the first time, they understand that it's not just them having lack of willpower and there is hope, which unfortunately learned hopelessness is a big one in the clinic um, that prevents people from even trying because they've been through the ringer by the time they come to see me. Yeah. And this is where I think the, the test, you know, don't guess uh, paradigm comes into play. And, and it would be great if we were able to do this uh, more widely for people and earlier in the journey. So they don't get to that point of frustration that, you know, nothing has worked and uh, kind of get that defeated uh, attitude. What, so what are the barriers to making this, you know, more mainstream? Why why don't you think this uh, this type of testing uh, is common, you know, worldwide, really, you know, in Australia, here in the U.S., and, and I think really worldwide this is an uh, issue that this type of testing is not common? So there's a couple of aspects which I mentioned before in terms of complexity and and cost and those sorts of things. But I think the biggest thing, as with a lot of um, some of the other health interventions coming out, is change, and change takes time. So if we can make the path of least resistance, so, for example, having a device that's the size of a shoes box in clinic and not inconvenient and has that software to help the interpretation and tell them, which is what we're developing at the moment, is something called Enable, which is that back software to say, oh, this patient over here matches this patient that, for example, Kersey seen or this endocrinologist seen, they did this, they got these results. So automatically you're finding a metabolic twin that says, hey, here's some interventions that can help this specific individual. So um, I think that is one of the challenges. It's it's innovative, which naturally comes with some resistance, but the more we can educate, overcome some of the um, the expenses, the cumbersome nature of some of these devices um, and some of that support, um, I think there's no reason why we can't. Um, but So you're building not, it's not just a, a device that measures, it's also an expert system that... A digital health platform. And can I correct you there? It's not me personally. Um, I wish. Um, But essentially, my role is to say, does this have real-world impact? So similar to all the things they do on rats and in research, that's all well and good, but we need to make sure it works in the real world, that practitioners can understand and we can really have the impact that we're after. Is this the kind of thing that a patient could 
say to to his doctor, hey, please do this. And the doctor could find a way to get it done. At the moment, even though it is a bit more restricted than we would like or have the ability to have the impact on, they most probably can. So over here in Australia, um, most um, universities do offer testing. Um, So there generally is a way um, to get that done. Unfortunately, it's the interpretation and the what to do with that. Right. That was my next question. Um, (laughs) We do, um, myself, um, we have a a dietitian on board and and some other collaborators. If that is the case, feel free to reach out and I'll try and pop up in contact with someone who who might be able to help from that aspect online. but, yeah, it can definitely get tested. So at the, at the least, if you want to make sure that your metabolism is not slow, it can be tested. But once again, be weary of some of these devices which only test metabolism. You're missing that next critical stage, which is are they burning fat? Okay, now I'm confused. Sorry, I, thought... I did go off on a bit of a tangent there. So <laughs> similar to cars, um, these indirect calorimeters or, or metabolic carts have features. So some of them only have an oxygen analyzer, and that's how we're able to tell if someone's metabolism is fast or slow. Now, with the added benefit of a CO2 analyzer, we can see the byproduct, and it's the ratio of those two gases which enabled, enables us to have a look at what fuel they're using. Because fat is what we call an efficient fuel. It uses a lot of oxygen, doesn't give off much much weight in the form of CO2. So that can be an environmental debate as well if we want it to be. And Oh, oh, I I think we just found the trigger. (laughs) End global warming, burn burn your own body fat. Yeah. You can make this a political win for everybody. I like it. Yeah. A little bit out of my realm, shall we say, but has been noted. Good marketing. Um, We can make it happen. On the flip side is when you burn carbohydrates, you tend to give off a a lot more carbon dioxide, um, which means the ratio of that to the oxygen is one on one. So that's how we're able to tell. Uh, Is this oxygen that you expire or, or oxygen that you're taking in? So great question. So in the in the air that we're breathing, there's about 21% oxygen. Right. We measure what you breathe out, which essentially is the utilization. As machines, unfortunately, humans aren't very efficient. Out of the 21% in the atmosphere, we breathe out about 16 to 17%. And the rest of it is CO2. The the rest of um, the air is nitrogen and CO2. So we're measuring um, essentially something called FeO2, which is um, and the volumes and the percentage, which enables us to have a look at that. Sure. And that's beyond, as I said, is there's a lot of engineering, um, which I do hear some of these terminologies um, that go into sciences like this. Um, but essentially, as the practitioner, um, the software enables me to calculate that so that I can get useful data, 
because if I say, here's your CO2, it doesn't really mean too much. Okay. So uh, in the same way that my my Keto Mojo device uh, checks my glucose and my ketones and then does a calculation, says this is your glucose ketone index. Am I saying that right, Phil? Yep. This is yep. your GKI. It's a ratio that I haven't, I have yet to figure out how to calculate myself. Um, you're comparing the ratio of gases in the, in the breath. And that is a more accurate way of measuring what we're burning for, for fuel. Yeah. So essentially that ratio um, if anyone does want to look further into this, is called respiratory exchange ratio or R- respiratory reflex, exchange ratio. Okay. RQ, which is respiratory quotient at rest. So it, res- it um, is representative of what's happening at a cellular level at rest. And this is how they also have a look at, um, you know, you would have seen, you know, people on a treadmill with uh, things over yeah. their mouth, tubes. That's the same technology, but what they're looking at is the point at which that RQ goes above a certain point to look at their VO2 max and those sorts of things. So it's the same technology, but we're using it at rest because, number one, that's how we spend most of our day. And even in athletes, that impacts their recovery, their sleep, and all those other important aspects of performance. I am so glad that we are finally having this conversation, Phil, because I was talking to someone uh, this past weekend, and you know, they said, "What do you do?" And I told them about this podcast, and I said, "Oh, the 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 centerpiece of it is metabolic health." And they said, "Well, what does that mean?" <laughs> and I realized I don't really have a good explanation. I don't have a good description of what it means to be metabolically healthy. It's like porn. I know it when I see it, but but I don't actually know the. You can use that, by the way, Phil. Um, I, I didn't have a good understanding of what of of what the difference between metabolically unhealthy and and not was. So, okay. And I think that's really important because a lot of um, patients and and you might experience the same. Um, feel come focusing on the weight side of things. But as we know, we can get people who are normal weight, who have cardiovascular disease, fatty liver, diabetes, and that comes down to obviously their metabolic health, where they're storing weight. So it's not just a simple narrative and story. You need to have a look at what's going on inside. I want to ask you about, I'm I'm on your website, metabolichealthsolutions.org. Yeah. Um, and I will remind the listeners this stuff will be in the show notes. You talk about results and weight loss, which everybody's going to assume is happening, and uh, reduced central obesity. What's what does central obesity mean? So that's um, the weight that we store around that midsection. Okay. So, that's, I assume that's what it was, but yeah, the the, the visceral fat that visceral you know, fat we talk about um, is really yeah. what central obesity comes down to. Around the organs, that's the biggest risk for metabolic health. We also have a look at neck, which is a um, a newer one that we've introduced, particularly for the likes of um, sleep apnea 
For example, we now know that another fat deposit site, not just around the organs, can be in your neck. So we use that as a proxy um, for patients um, in terms of their metabolic health as well. Well, as I'm looking at this this list of things, mean weight loss, reduce fat mass, improve fat utilization, insulin resistance, diabetes, I'm thinking, yeah, all of those things make sense. And then we get to this PCOS fertility. How in the world does metabolic health relate to PCOS and fertility? Very interesting. So I'll start with a story to make it real world. It's not just all science and data. I seen a patient back in 2018 who um, I seen at the chemist the other day. She goes, I'm sorry, I don't think you know. I have a three-year-old healthy boy. Thank you. So with the education and the understanding she got of what's happening for her own body, she continued her own journey. And when she was in um, on holiday, she fell pregnant naturally and got to cancel her fertility specialist appointment because they were looking at the root of IVF. So that's that doesn't happen every day, but that's the impact it can have. So taking that a step back, we see a lot of people, for example, with PCOS. So that's polycystic ovarian syndrome. From where metabolism comes into it, their ovaries are essentially insulin resistant. They're producing, some of the cells are producing too much testosterone. There's hormonal imbalances. So by getting the body working as it should, reducing um, the carbohydrate load for some of these individuals means that these fecal cells don't produce as much testosterone. We can balance that out. Um, get them burning fat again. So not only are they getting the benefits in terms of fertility from the weight loss side of things, they're also getting it from the return of their menstrual cycles um, and those sides of things as well. So it's the hormonal components and the weight loss components. When you essentially improve your metabolic health, they have big impacts on on those sorts of areas. So it it sounds like the message there is a poor metabolic health has an impact can have an impact on a woman's fertility and men as well as weight diabetes the stuff that we kind of all know about yes absolutely yeah. so once again is this is um you know where we where we open um these pathways um to to help individuals in their understanding and this is why you know as i said some people with pcos aren't actually overweight and once again because that is a symptom but if we bring it back to basics of what's happening with their metabolism as opposed to overwhelming them why do they have excess hair? Why are they having troubles with their menstrual cycle? This, that, and the other. If we bring it back, we can have a bit more of an impact. So another example, hopefully not to blow your mind too much, looking at your face there, Jack, oh, I'm, I'm loving and hopefully it. feel as well. Um, 
So, for example, a couple of other areas where this technology can give us some real big insights, there was one study done which had a look at the the fat burning before they went into weight loss surgery. And those that burnt fat going into weight loss surgery had better outcomes. So once again, metabolic health can drive the impact of not only weight loss surgery but recovery from knee surgery because of its impact on things like inflammation. Yeah, you know, we uh, certainly, you know, I think uh, there have been now a few people looking at this, Dr. Rob uh, Seifus, uh, who's a uh, bariatric surgeon uh, here in uh, Florida, um, you know, has looked extensively at this. And you're exactly right. You know, people who undergo weight loss surgery, uh, bariatric surgery, and don't address the underlying, uh, you know, metabolic health issue that led to them, you know, becoming morbidly obese in the first place, uh, oftentimes, you know, get very disappointing results uh, from the weight loss surgery. You know, they'll they'll typically lose weight initially, but then end up regaining it uh, because they haven't addressed that underlying physiology. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it's yet another example of, you know, sort of missed opportunities, I think, within uh, healthcare these days. And, you know, stepping back to the PCOS issue as well, um, again, I think PCOS is oftentimes one of the first manifestation for women, um, you know, of metabolic health issues, and it doesn't get recognized, or even if it does get recognized as a metabolic health issue, uh, you know, oftentimes it doesn't get addressed from the sort of root cause metabolic health issue of what you're eating. Um, And, you know, those patients with PCOS oftentimes get put on you know, one of the common medications used for PCOS is metformin, which is, uh, you know, a diabetes drug, uh, typically. Uh, and so it's sort of addressing the metabolic health issue, but it's not really getting at it in what would be the preferred way of, you know, looking at the diet and lifestyle um, issues there. And I think um, something like metformin definitely has a role as an adjunct therapy. But if their lifestyle, you know, they're not sleeping, which obviously, um, sorry, not obviously, but can change some of their hormones and, and, and prevent them from burning fat, which is maybe why when you have poor sleep, you tend to want the wrong things and, and be a bit tired. Um, if they're not addressing those key components, it's not going to have as much of an impact. It might maybe impact the progression, but it's not addressing the the key issues. A good adjunct therapy um, similar with um, my views are a lot of the new weight loss drugs out there and those sorts of things. Um, but once we address the physiology, it gives them the best bang for the buck when they're using those. Uh, I guess it makes sense. Here's my here's here's my comment. I didn't realize it, it just hadn't occurred to me that in addition to insulin, that poor metabolic health could affect other hormones as well. I just, I'm the resident idiot. I thought, okay, you're metabolically unhealthy. You've probably got an insulin problem, but it never occurred to me that you could also have other screwed up hormones as a direct result. And I assume I'm not, not taking this too far as a direct result of the same metabolic ill health. 
Yeah, similar to we simplify, you know, our body equals energy in, energy out. We can't look at things just from one aspect. We have a lot of feedback systems um, and and the way that um, things spark other aspects of our metabolism and, and, and physiology. So we need to look at things as a whole and people as a whole. People have diabetes. They're not diabetes. Yeah, I like that. All right, so, I wanted um, to, I, that if, if you don't mind, Phil, look, I want to I want to address one more thing on no our website. Thing. You also talked about chronic pain. Yes. So once again, similar to the fertility aspect, is if we're helping people lose weight, we're reducing the stress on their joints. However, the amount of times in clinic someone might report or I ask. Oh, how's your knee pain? Two weeks. They're like, oh, actually, it's better. And that's because, once again, when the body's working as it should, there's less inflammatory factors, less insulin, which is pro-inflammatory, and it can have a cascade of events that improve that that pain aspect. So fibromyalgia um, is a common thing that we might see improve when people improve their metabolic health. By all means, they they might not be what's considered normal, but they do get some symptom relief. <laughs> it kind of so, all comes uh, back to metabolic that, health. Yeah, that leads to a question uh, that I was going to ask before as to how quickly do you see, you know, these changes occurring, uh, you know, specifically when you're looking at the indirect calorimetry uh, and the respiratory quotient and all that, you know, how, how quickly when people make the dietary changes, you know, and the associated changes with activity, um, how quickly do you th- see these things shift? Well, metabolism can change within three to five days. So in the clinic, personally, I generally do a couple of weeks follow-up just to make sure that we're actually on the right track for that individual. It doesn't work for everyone. If not, why not having a look at some of those other factors and, and pathology and tweaking things up, also addressing any issues that they might have with compliance as well, problem solving there because it's not as easy as just doing it. Um, but essentially the advantage of getting in in such a short ter- time frame is we can see whether they're on the right track but also before their weight has significant change, which is all they've known up until now. And if particularly middle-aged females, that doesn't move too much, they give up. But if they can see that they're changing their fat burning or they're putting fasting in place and not reducing their metabolic rate, they're more motivated to continue. And the likes of um, supplementation or exercise I would say most probably about six to eight weeks for some of those things. They might not be as dramatic. But everyone's different. So I'm thinking thinking about people who have had bariatric surgery, seen very little result, keep the weight on or maybe lose a little or maybe gain more. Um. Does this change in the intestines or the stomach? I know, I know some of them, they shrink the stomach or whatever. Um, does that change how we make use of food? 
In particular, I've got a friend who had uh, the balloon put in, I think it is, yep. in, his, in his stomach. And so he has to be very careful about what he eats and the amount he eats. And if I could be wrong about this, but I was under the impression that he had to be really careful about the amount of fat that he consumed, which seems backwards. Interesting. So essentially, from my understanding, the balloon is a physical restriction to reduce the amount of food, which is a problem for some people because if you're overeating on anything, you're not going to be accessing your fat stores. You're going to be using what you're putting in. So that's one of the reasons it can help. When you've got foreign object in your stomach, that can present um, a lot of people get the reflux and and those sorts of issues and complaints, nausea. So more so that might be a reason why they can't eat a lot of fat. Or I know a lot of people who have surgery don't deal well with eating a lot of, for example, meat because of the texture it brings reflux, which can be a huge issue because if they're getting inadequate protein, they're losing their muscle, which is another thing that might be worth monitoring, the muscle and fat through something called biological impedance under pretest conditions so that we can make sure that they're getting the optimal outcomes because in that scenario, if they're losing muscle, not getting the key nutrients, they're going to be fatigued, they're going to lose their hair, and they're going to regain the weight, which is what we often see. So when people say surgery and and, and these tools are the easy way out, I quickly pull them up because there are it's there's definitely its challenges. There are tools in the kit, but once again, let's take it a step back. Think of the physiology and what might be going on for these individuals. And then the follow-up question is for those individuals who've had some sort of of surgery on their intestines, resectioning an intestine or something, does that also change how our bodies make use of our food? Yeah, in a couple of ways. Um, So particularly when they have some of the sections of their stomach removed that produced um, some of the hunger hormones. So that's why um, they've generally gone from what we call banding, which is just a physical restriction of the stomach, to a sleeve, which is cutting off some components of their stomach, which release hunger hormones because that hunger regulation and cravings can be a big issue um, for some of these individuals. But once again, things like your adequate protein, making sure that you're burning fat so that you get nice, stable energy and you don't send off those starvation signals can definitely help. What about the gallbladder? How's the gallbladder play into this? So the gallbladder releases something called bile, um, which is generally yellow in colour in illustrations, which helps break down fat. However, is if someone has, for example, had their gallbladder removed and they're struggling with um, some gastrointestinal upsets, you might want to do one of the following. Is That's worked for certain individuals. Is Number one, reduce the amount of fat is once again is if you're accessing your fat stores, your diet doesn't necessarily need to be high fat. It is high fat, but from your own body fat stores, not external sources. Number two is we know that the liver, because the gallbladder sends this bile to the liver, also can produce 
some bile to help in this process. If your gallbladder is removed, make sure you eat at similar times of the day so that the body is geared up to release that bile to help in the digestion, particularly initially while your body's adapting. There are some bile um, acid supplements and those sorts of things. Diet Doctor, if you guys are familiar with that website, has a really good article on on diet, particularly specifically lower carbohydrate diets and and gallbladder if um, people are having concerns or experiencing any issues. Kirsty, one uh, other topic I wanted to touch on that we haven't really gotten to uh, is the activity part of this. And I'm wondering what kind of insights, you know, you've gained from having this testing available in terms of the types of activities, the types of exercise uh, that, you know, you find to be most beneficial for people. And the short answer to that is it depends. So going back to what we were talking about earlier is um, the patient who wasn't burning fat, doing a lot of HIIT, really trying hard, but actually taking back that exercise, allowing her body to access her fat stores and, and become metabolically healthy was more important, the exercise component. So exercise is, in terms of weight loss, by itself, isn't that effective, but in conjunction with diet can be really effective, not only in weight loss, but more so weight loss maintenance because of its role in insulin sensitivity. So it plays a role like um, metformin in PCOS and also that muscle maintenance, that stimulus to make sure that people have that metabolically active tissue to help. So when someone is burning fat, that's a different kettle of fish. Those guys can benefit from the hit and the, the power workouts and those sorts of things because they're accessing the fat stores. They're not going to get those detrimental um, impacts that someone who's not going to burn fat would. Now, also what's really important is going back to that muscle. We're finding you're getting adequate protein, but you do need that stimulus. So resistance-based training is really important for a lot of our patients. And I'm not talking about going to the gym and, and pumping weights. I'm talking about doing some sit-to-stand sit sort of exercise or push-ups against a wall for certain individuals is enough stimulus to help maintain that muscle mass in conjunction with adequate protein. So in short, if you're burning fat, you, get your, you can get most benefit from exercise, um, particularly the high-intensity stuff which makes some changes in liver enzymes, for example, for, for fatty liver. At a recent conference, they had a look at a 4x4 protocol, HIP protocol, to help fatty liver, which works in some individuals. For those that don't respond, I suspect it's because of their metabolic health. They definitely want to be focusing on lower-intensity sort of exercise at the start in conjunction with their resistance-based training. I want to make sure I want to try to summarize what I heard you just say and make sure I got it right. If you are metabolically healthy, which we are defining as you are accessing your own fat stores as an energy source, in that case, high intensity interval training is good for you in terms of of both uh, health and maintenance. Yes. However, if 
you're not metabolically healthy if you're not currently accessing your own fat stores as energy sources, but are primarily getting your energy from your glucose. Yes, correct. Then high-intensity interval training not only won't help, it may actually set you back. Correct. For those who are listening and not watching, Phil is shaking his head yes as well. And that's why, as I said, some of the frustration comes from patients is, you know, we know that HIIT training has benefits. Um, and as a general rule, some in the past we might have been scared of it, but even those who aren't as healthy, it's generally safe and feasible for most patients. But it's not right for everyone. There's people out there I know right now listening who are going, that's it. That's what it is. I've been working my ass off in the gym and it, nothing is helping. And uh, we also need to make sure that they're getting adequate recovery. So not overtraining and the components of we can't neglect things like sleep either. Yeah. So um, I know we focused a lot of on uh, nutrition and exercise. But once again, there are other key components or pillars that build a house and and that's um, metabolic health as well. We need to make sure we've got uh, all those in check. Well, I'm going to assume based on just the sheer volume of knowledge that uh, bubbles uh, within you and a lot of which we've gotten to, to access today, that coming to see you is wildly expensive, and that's the only reason that people don't do it. Look, thank you for giving me a bit of a big head, but not the case. So once again, is I see um, people um, privately and through a GP referral, um, which under a couple hundred dollars they can get an initial assessment with, it, which is over, over about an hour in our clinics with either myself or one of the dietitians, us personally. But the big hope is once again to make this accessible so, you know, we can make it accessible in terms of the amount of people that are doing it but also in terms of the cost. Um, I'm really lucky to be a part of a team that's really passionate about this, which means it can be accessible to most, not everyone, um, but accessible to most. So for those who are physically within uh, reach of you, how do they find out more so that they can maybe uh, come see you, come see you or one of the, your, your fellow practitioners in a clinic? Absolutely. So um, the website is most probably the best place. Um, there's a clinics. They can click on the clinics and it has um, aspects there. But also don't be afraid to reach out because we have a lot of collaborators and, and those sorts of things who who aren't specifically one of our clinics because they're more so what we call proof of concept clinics to say let's make sure this works and, and trial some of these components, whether it be originally testing in real world and now moving forward testing some of these digital software components to make it as effective as we can. For those not within physical range of a clinic, what what do you offer other than just knowledge? Um, we do have a Facebook MHS clinics where I do 
um, some short videos, um, share the latest research. That might be a good place to start. Um, as mentioned, if you're able to get access to some testing, um, we might be able to help virtually there. Um, but, yeah, just really passionate about um, being able to help and educate people um, so they may be the best platforms. If there is any practitioners um, here, Twitter's maybe a better uh, platform where I post case studies and, and once again, some research, but more so tailored um, to that area. And um, if I'm correct, one of the uh, efforts that Metabolic Health Solutions is also working on is trying to make this technology, you know, more accessible for practitioners uh, to be able to put into use in the clinic worldwide. Absolutely. Um, so at, at this current stage, obviously, um, here in Australia and the UK uh, and also um, Singapore, they're um, being used by endocrinologists, the English Institute of Sport, um, practitioners, dietitians, exercise physiologists. Um, but once again, is the vision is to make that broader so that we can um, really test the world's metabolism, as mentioned before, and and help with um, some of these key understandings so that we can move forward to the future for lack of better word of how we started the podcast. I like it. So I'll remind our listeners, we'll provide contact information for Kirsty and Metabolic Health Solutions in the show notes. Phil, anything else before we wrap it up? Just, uh, I guess, to circle back with how we open the episode, I would say the future is bright. And I think as we get, you know, more and more insight into all of this and are able to, you know, use this testing uh, in the clinics, uh, we will be able to help more and more people. So all right. thank you for everything you and your team are doing, Kirsty. Yeah, thank you for turning the lights on for me. I feel... <laughs> A lot no, thank stupid. you so much for having <laughs> us. And um, as I said, hopefully we can help um, the penny drop for a lot of individuals of, you know, we're bombarded with all this information out there, but when we can't relate it to ourselves or someone that we see, um, it can become rather challenging. So, yeah, yeah. There is hope, which is great. This has been good. All right. Well, I think we're done. Brilliant. Yep. Y'all follow Dr. Phil on uh, Twitter at iFixHearts and uh and follow Kirsty. What's your what's your Twitter? <laughs> what is your Twitter handle? Low carb EP. Low carb EP. Very good. All right. For Phil, Brilliant. for Kirsty, I'm Jack. We'll talk to y'all next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.